It's an honor to be in uh, Pastor Keith's pulpit. We've had a great series on community that the pastor has led us in. And if you weren't here last Sunday, we actually had the chairs arranged for small groups. And we said it was, it, it was kind of strange. I thought it was kind of strange at first, but I really enjoyed it after a while. So I thought maybe we could get up and move the chairs now and do that again this Sunday. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. I was <laughs> waiting for some of the guys that that salute sharply and take the hill to start moving chairs. But it really was good. And um, in my background, I guess, sometimes we call community body life or one anothering, you know, love one another. Uh, the old saints, Puritans and reformers and the old creeds and confessions and catechisms often termed it the communion of saints. Pastor Philip Ryken, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he writes it this way, the communion of saints is a living fellowship of love animated by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and sharing a common life of unity, charity, and generosity. That's pretty good, isn't it? But we have to understand this, that unity is a byproduct of the church community actively embracing the truth claims of the gospel, we must build unity on a foundation of truth, for you cannot build truth on unity. Unity is really not the primary goal. But you know, a false understanding of this may be one of the great weaknesses of the church today we often feel that we get together to make each other feel good. We gather because we just don't quite feel complete, maybe unless we've been to church. It sometimes concerns me when I hear someone say, going to church really helps me get through the week. And I imagined some of you young men, when you meet a young lady and you start a relationship and maybe it's going well and after a few months you're seeing each other regularly and maybe going out on weekends, and then the young man says to her, you know, I really enjoy going out with you. It helps me get through the week. What a romantic, huh? That's not really the purpose. I was raised, and I guess just the pastors that I had, I heard frequently from the time I was young that the church is continually on a war footing you see, I'm concerned that instead of being the church militant today, we perhaps have become the church therapeutic at times. There's a best-selling book from a decade or so ago entitled Habits of the Heart by Dr. Robert Bella, a secular sociologist. And he noticed this trend all the way back to the 1800s when he studied the church, and he found that sermons had become more emotional and sentimental and that the church, and I quote, did more to reinforce the world by caring for its casualties than to challenge the world's assumptions. And this is from a non-Christian professional. In other words, the church was transformed from a house of worship into a house of sort of pop psychotherapy. Too much binding up wounds, too little breaking down of strongholds. But you ask, aren't we supposed to care for each other, for the hurting and afflicted? And of course, and that's what these past few weeks have been about. 
didn't Jesus do that? Of course Jesus did that. And that's the communion of the saints. But Jesus also promised a life of cross-bearing. He never affirmed anyone in his sin, which is the modern therapeutic method in many churches. He never said, go and consider thyself a sinner no more. What did Jesus say? Go and sin no more. When the disciples asked about the man he had healed, and that man was born blind, Jesus didn't say, when they asked him why was he born blind, Jesus didn't say, well, so that his latent potential might be actualized later in life. <laughs> no, what did he say? That God might be glorified. And so you ask, you mean that I might suffer, that God might be glorified? Well, it used to be sacrifice was one of the cardinal virtues of the Christian faith. Psalm 142, David in, in exile in a cave, he cries out, set me free from my prison that I might praise your name. What a plea, what a cry. You see, God gloriously delivers so that the delivered ones may glorify him. It's God's glory to deliver his people. How often do we forget this when we think that he has forgotten us? That it's God's glory to deliver that his people may glorify him. Isaiah 49 says, when Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. What was the Lord's response? Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? I'll never forget you. And then he proves it when he says, see, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. And now in the New Testament church, it would be on the nail-scarred palms of the hands of our saviors. If I wanted to forget you, I could not forget you. I have your life story written on the very palms of my hands. A mother may forget her child, a family member may forget another family member, a friend may forget a friend, but your heavenly father will never forget you. And anyway, we're strangers and aliens passing through this sad world, heading for a city whose builder and maker is God. And the plans for our residence there have been in the heart of God from all eternity past. And the general contractor is our elder brother. And if it were not so, he would have told us so. And our father and our brother always keep their promises. So we know we have an eternal home. We have a destiny. The French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville wrote his book, Democracy in America, when he came to this country after our revolution to study uh, this culture and this great experiment in liberty. And one of the general uh, comments he made was that these people's minds are always on the world to come but it makes them very productive in this world. That's a great compliment, isn't it? Well, we must guard our hearts and refrain from setting our hearts on the things here on earth, setting our affections on the things of this world. And we must set our hearts, as the psalmist says in Psalm 84, we must set our hearts on pilgrimage Turn with me to Psalm 84. I'll be reading from the 
NIV, but it's very similar to the ESV and others, just one phrase that is I like the poetry of the older versions. And remember, this is the word of God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that from all eternity you are God. You never change. Father, we're thankful for your word that never changes that is life-giving to us and through the work of your Son and the power of your Spirit that indwells us, Lord, we are changed and transformed more and more into his image. May it be so this day, Lord. Move from heart to heart, Father. Speak to us. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In 1978, a group of distinguished theologians and pastors and Scholars developed what became known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And uh, Dr. Art Moeller, who is the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, wrote this. He said, without inerrancy, the evangelical movement will inevitably become dissolute and, and disappointed in its faith and doctrines and increasingly confused about the very nature and authority of its message. I will make my position plain. I do not believe that evangelicalism can survive without the explicit and complete assertion of biblical inerrancy. And I assume that most of us could affirm that. I didn't read the entire statement. It was pages long. But these men found that in the evangelical church, generally, people could affirm that. But they found the problem was that folks were not so sure about the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of Christ. You've heard it said, Jesus plus something else is not the gospel at all. Professor Wayne Mack wrote this, a belief in biblical inerrancy entails an affirmation of Scripture's sufficiency 
for understanding and resolving the spiritual problems of man. He said this is clearly affirmed in Scripture itself, the sufficiency of Scripture and Christ in, a de in dealing with man's problems. And that is not to denigrate any other profession, any other uh, vocation that can be of help to mankind, but the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture is, well, it's, it's a non-optional principle, as I used to be told. <coughs> Donald Gray Barnhouse preceded James Boyce as pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church. That's two pastors from 10th Presbyterian that I've mentioned this morning. Uh, it's an amazing church. I just remembered I went to a conference there in, I guess, the late 1990s. During a break, I, went, I was walking around the building, and there was a hallway with, with portraits of all the pastors from, like, the Civil War era till today. And I don't know if the church was founded around the Civil War era, I'm not sure, but from the Civil War to that point, you know how many portraits there were in that hallway? Five. So each man had quite a ministry there. Donald Gray Barnhouse had a great radio ministry as well, I would say in the 1950s, 60s, 70s perhaps. He was in a small group Bible study. He tells this story when he was in seminary and the leader looked at all the men and said, tell us one of your favorite verses in scripture. So, and why it's your favorite, you know, the inspiration for it. And they went around, and there was one young cynic in the crowd, and he immediately said, 1 Chronicles 26, 18. And they waited, you know, as he recited the verse, and from an old translation, which I presume was all they had in Barnhouse's day, at Parbar westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. And they looked rather, you know, quizzically at each other and at him. Um, and then the man said, you guys think the Bible is inspired. You tell me the inspiration for that verse. Now there's your official wet blanket at a Bible study, right? <laughs> and... Um, Fortunately for the kingdom of God, that man dropped out of seminary shortly thereafter. But Barnhouse said he was studying 1 Chronicles later, and it became very clear. Chapters 24 to 26. Chapter 24 is Aaron and his sons, who manned the altars and the sacrifices of the temple. Chapter 25 is Aaron's cousins Asaph. They were the musicians in the temple. And chapter 26 were the sons of Korah. They were the doorkeepers in the temple. Well, the King James had transliterated that word parbar, and really what it meant was the western court or the western colonnade of the temple. So God is instructing that at the western gate you're to have four men at the road, four doorkeepers at the road, and two at the court itself. And Barnhouse said it blessed his heart to realize that God had taken such pains to instruct exactly where these men would be positioned in the temple. So, really the custodians of the church would know where they were to be positioned. And he concluded, that man meant it for confusion to me, but God meant it for good. 
Now these doorkeepers, these sons of Korah, you may have noticed, wrote Psalm 84. So they were involved in the worship liturgy as well, and they wrote with deep and uh, artful imagery. Psalm 42 is attributed to them as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs after thee. Charles Spurgeon is called Psalm 84 the most beautiful of the Psalms of peace. He calls it the pearl of the Psalms, for it refers so much to Jesus, your anointed one, the blessed one, the one for them in whom we look for. Aren't we blessed to look and know that he has come and done what was promised by the witness of the Spirit within us? And these doorkeepers, they were humble, what you might call custodians, as I said. And this may have been written at a time when Judah was under siege, for you sense a real, uh, a, a sense of longing of the soul. Perhaps the, the temple, uh, access to the temple had been hindered uh, by other forces. And you see, too, that it's, it's divisible by threes in a number of ways. Those who work at the temple, the doorkeepers, the pilgrims making their way to the temple, and those far off longing for the temple. Also by the blessings it speaks of. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Blessed are those who trust in you. And it speaks of the three emotions related to worship, of preparing for this pilgrimage, preparing to go to worship. The, the travel itself, the pilgrimage itself, this adventure and this expedition as we head for worship. And then finally, arriving at the temple itself and the, and the experience of worship. And the great exhilaration of being in God's presence with God's people. That experience of worship that we're involved in right now. And so we consider the most quoted phrase in verse 10, better is one day. One, that's, that's quite a statement by these doorkeepers. They were thrilled to be custodians of the temple. They valued one day's labor more than all the pleasures and riches this world can offer. Wow, that is, that's just humbling to think of, isn't it? And I imagine them on the lowest rung of the pecking order. Their responsibilities were probably mundane and menial, routine, much less than exhilarating. But these sons of Korah were thrilled to be in and about God's house and about his business. So church, I ask us, are we thrilled to be in God's house and about his business? Do we yearn for it? And you know, the dwelling place was not lovely because of its fine decor. It was lovely because of its divine occupant, the very presence of God himself that they traveled and pilgrimaged to be in. My heart cries out, my soul longs for that. Not for some structure, not for some beautiful building, but for God's presence. And so we, to some extent, must be careful about our new building. We cried out for God's presence to precede us here, and I believe it has. 
But let's live in the spirit, knowing that our bodies are really the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of the Most High. That's an awesome thought, too. We don't worship a structure, but we certainly, I would say, acknowledge that God's grace is most evident when his people are gathered together in worship. Yet, as for us, do we really cry out and long for him, or do we merely presume upon his presence and his promises? These doorkeepers yearn to be in his presence. And what do we have? We have free access to the Holy of Holies. By Christ, our high priest, through the Holy Spirit that's given to us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Pastor Joe Novenson of Lookout Mountain Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, tells of a wedding that he officiated. The groom was a strapping young man, he said, a new graduate from Covenant College. And he said everything was fine as the bridesmaids proceeded in. But he said when that note was struck and the bride came into the sanctuary, he said this groom's knees buckled and he almost hit the floor. He said I reached over to help him up and he said he wasn't crying. He was sobbing uncontrollably. So overwhelmed to be in the presence of his beloved. How much more should we be overwhelmed in the presence of the one true and living God? The God who calls us his beloved. We are the bride for whom the groom shed not only tears, but his life's blood as well. My soul longs for your presence. Oh, God. And, you know, these doorkeepers, it speaks of these swallows that lived around the temple. I think the doorkeepers may have envied them and where they lived, and they had pretty much unfettered access to the temple. But, you know, the swallows didn't know that. They didn't care. Swallows just naturally glorify God in whatever they do. I would say that man is the only creature, perhaps other than fallen angels, man is the only creature that does not naturally glorify God in everything that they do. Many of the old hymns talk about, uh, you know, as such a worm as I. And I remember the great uh, pastor and theologian John Gerstner said, I wish I was as upright as any worm. They glorify God in everything they do. Man is the creature that has the problem. That's because we're fallen. We live in a fallen world. And this is not our home. We're homeless strangers, aliens on a pilgrimage. That's why our hearts are restless till they find their rest. So don't set your hearts on the things of this world. Set your hearts on pilgrimage. If you need a title for this message, that would be it. And that's why I'm using one of the older translations. Set your heart on pilgrimage. You know, if you need a verse for life to help you find your calling, that might be a good one too. Set your heart 
on pilgrimage. If you need assurance that God's word and his word made flesh are sufficient for every need, that might help as well. Set your heart on pilgrimage. The phrase literally means those in whose hearts are the highways. In some of your translations it says that, ESV. The highways to Zion, the highways to Jerusalem. Their hearts are the highways to the very presence of God. To the presence of God himself. I have to imagine a good portion of those folks' lives revolved around pilgrimage. Uh, preparing for pilgrimage, making the pilgrimage, returning from pilgrimage. It was no small matter. Three times a year they were called to go to Jerusalem. And entire households made the trek, children of all ages, elderly of all ages, animals. And it was hot and dry and at times dangerous. Because you see, there's a price to be paid for pilgrimage. There's a price to be paid for pilgrimage. And the text tells us they passed through the valley of Baca, or the veil of weeping. The veil of weeping. But they made it a place of springs where pools or blessings covered the ground. I understand that at times they would actually dig like cisterns in the driest part of the year, just so when the rains came in the autumn, there would be water gathered there for pilgrims in the future. You see, they counted it joy to pay the price of pilgrimage. And the many souls who could not make the journey, they were the ones who, who were sorrowful. The pain of their yearning perhaps was more costly than the, than the price of pilgrimage itself. So Church of Jesus Christ, can we say that today, that our hearts ache to be in God's presence and with God's people? Do we consciously live in the knowledge that he is sufficient for the journey and that the price of pilgrimage is insignificant compared to the glory of his presence and the glory of what he has promised lay ahead for those who trust in him? The Apostle Paul put it this way, the light afflictions of this world can't compare to the glory to come. What were Paul's light afflictions? Do you remember the litany? Shipwreck, beaten, 40 lashes, beaten almost to death, thrown out of town, put in prison unfairly. The late revivalist Leonard Ravenhill used to say, that verse must have aggravated Satan more than any other. He said, I believe he had a poster of the apostle Paul in the war room in hell. And when Paul died, he gave the demons two weeks off. Light afflictions? I had to title a car this week and thought I was afflicted. <laughs> Paul was, well, he was called the apostle of the heart set free by one writer. We had a leadership training session here a couple of sessions a few weeks ago. And uh, the teacher facilitator, one of the last sessions he had for us, he asked us this question. 
Where do you see Harvest Baptist Church in five years? Well, there was a pretty good silence and people kind of staring at each other for a while. So I spoke up just being practical in a numbers, I'm not a numbers guy, but just saying, well, here's what way to get it started. Well, we'll grow so much that we'll have two morning worship services and we'll have 12 fully functioning, loving small groups. Well, there was silence after that too. <laughs> but then two brave souls uh, stood up and said things like this, that we'd be seen as the most exciting church in the area. People anxious to come to see what's happening here, a church that's known for loving God, loving God's word, and loving the people of God. Now that's great. And again, Leonard Ravenhill used to say, a church on fire for Jesus attracts a crowd. He said, you don't need to advertise a fire. It's the most self-advertising thing in town. If the, if the church is on fire for Jesus with people's hearts set on pilgrimage, that in and of itself will draw a crowd. And I think that pilgrimage in this sense, it nurtures unity, which is what we need, which is what we're striving for even today. I guess the most well-known pilgrimage in scripture was made by a young couple in what we would term the year A.D. 12. This young couple from Nazareth went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And when the festival was over, they were a day's journey outside of Jerusalem before they noticed their 12-year-old son wasn't with them. They frantically inquired among family and friends, but young Jesus was nowhere to be found. They both feared the worst, I'm sure, for it was totally out of character from their obedient and respectful firstborn to behave in this manner. So Mary and Joseph turned around and retraced their steps back to Jerusalem, where they began what was to be a three-day search can you imagine? I imagine day one was, was frantic and day two was heart-stopping and day three, I don't know, grief-stricken. Finally, in desperation, I can see a physically and emotionally exhausted Mary look into the eyes of her broken-hearted husband and ask, Joseph, what should we do? What do we do? And as a last resort, what did they do? Maybe we'll go check the temple. Maybe we should go check the temple. We've looked everywhere else. And they did, and there he was, talking with the teachers of the law in the temple. And the word says they, the teachers, were amazed at his questions and his understanding. And Mary and Joseph were amazed that he was at the temple. And Jesus was amazed that Mary and Joseph were amazed that he was at the temple. And he asked them, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know where I would be? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house and about my father's business? 
certainly appears the heart of that young boy was set on pilgrimage. And I have to wonder if that 12-year-old knew that in some 21 years he would once again make pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover with 12 friends in an upper room. And I wonder if some of those who gave that 12-year-old runaway food and shelter in the temple and lodging in the temple, I wonder if one day they would be among the crowd that would be calling him a fool and a liar. And I wonder if some of those teachers of the law who were amazed at the discourse of this young child would be so appalled at his discourse as, at a, as a young man that they would call for his execution. And I wonder if during his own public ministry, Jesus would recall those four days when he was abandoned by his parents, especially when in his own ministry he described the price of pilgrimage as hating father and mother and brother and sister and your own life also. Wow. So I guess pilgrimage is not so much about living as it is about dying. And I guess Jesus came not so much to be our example as to be our sacrifice. And if so, then our calling is not so much to emulate his life as to identify with his death. For you see, there's a price to be paid for pilgrimage. The Apostle Paul, perhaps more than any other mortal, understood that price, experienced the price. It was the great theologian commentator F.F. Bruce that called him the apostle of the heart set free. His commentary on Philippians was named that. And he compares Psalm 84 to Paul's epistle to the Philippians for its spiritual joy and devotion Philippians is not his greatest theological treaty, not his deepest one, but it certainly is uh, a, an epistle of joy and faith and trust in his God. And when you look back on Paul's days in Philippi, it certainly was a, a veil of weeping, which he turned into a place of joy and blessing there was no synagogue, so the church met in homes, and they finally started meeting regularly in the house of a new convert, Lydia, a wealthy merchant of fine cloth. And then a problem occurs, which always occurs in Paul's ministry. Acts 16, verse 16, they were going to a place of prayer. They were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High God. Well, that's, that's a good fortune. That's true. Who are telling you the way to be saved. Another truth. But Paul became troubled by her. And one day he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. 
And at that moment, the spirit left her. Well, you see, when Paul exercised the spirit in that girl, he also exercised her profitability for her owners. And so her owners dragged them, Paul and Silas, into the marketplace where the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and flogged summarily, probably for some offense that we might call today malicious interference with a business relationship. It's not a crime, but it's, it's one of those causes of action we have today in the legal system. And they were put in prison, not just in prison, but in the inner cell of the prison, feet in stocks, and the jailer was warned to watch them carefully. What did that mean? If they get away, you're a goner, Mr. Jailer. And what did Paul and Silas do in prison? Well, they made their veil of weeping a place of blessing, didn't they? At midnight, at midnight, they were praying and singing hymns. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. And what did the jailer do? The guard pulled his sword to take his own life for allowing the prisoners to escape. But Paul shouted, don't hurt yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, he rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So again, I ask us, church, if you're involved in an earthquake and a huge trembling man comes and falls at your feet, and ask you, what must I do to be saved? I trust we're all prepared to give him an answer. We should be. We must be. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Wow. But you see, faith does not come by some earthquake or some blinding light, or some miracle. Faith comes by the inerrant word of Christ. The earthquake certainly produced the crisis that showed this man his need for faith. The earthquake gave witness to the truth that was to be proclaimed to him, I would say. But the earthquake was not the all-sufficient word of God. And Paul and Silas were faithful to share the gospel with this man and his household. No doubt, still in a, a dazed and, and beaten condition. And at that time of night, it was after midnight. We don't know exactly when. 
But in that condition, at that hour, they proclaimed the good news to this family. So there's the washing of regeneration for the jailer's household, followed by the washing of the wounds of these bloodied missionaries, and then the sharing of a meal together. This, this rugged jailer who just a few minutes earlier would have killed these guys if he had caught them trying to escape. Make no mistake about that. Now he is most tenderly ministering to their physical needs. The needs of his new brothers in Christ. Now that's the communion of saints in action. Truly a place of blessing in the veil of weeping. In the veil of the valley of the shadow of death. Now what would most of us have done in Paul's place? I can only speak for myself. Probably would have seen the earthquake as a miraculous deliverance of God. Would have gotten out of Dodge as soon as possible. But you know, when your heart is set on pilgrimage, no prison cell can hold you anyway. And when you're released from prison, you're still not your own. You're still a prisoner, a bond servant, because you've been purchased with a price. And you see there's a price to be paid for pilgrimage. There's a price to be paid. So verse 35 in Acts 16 tells us, When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release these men. And the jailer told Paul, Well, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Now, I don't think Paul was merely trying to, to inflate his ego by embarrassing the, uh, the city fathers. I think he did this as a testimony to those in Philippi and to all generations, including us, that the word of Christ will not be silenced. The gospel of Jesus Christ will not be held hostage. And above all, that the church of Jesus Christ will not be beaten into submission and then unceremoniously excused out the back door. And are we thankful that he took that stand? Verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. <laughs> After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. You see, they didn't run there at midnight after the earthquake, saying, pray for us, we've got to go, we'll write to you later. And oh, by the way, I think the jailer's dead. 
No, they were able to encourage them and encourage us today with the testimony of the church triumphant, of the blessings to those who trust in him. And from a Roman prison cell, sometime later, Paul would write back to these brothers in Philippi in prose that are reminiscent of Psalm 84, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. Blessed are those who trust in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. For you see, there's a price to be paid for pilgrimage. I read an interesting letter a decade or so ago, which I kept. It's not a letter to me, it's an, it's an old letter, probably from the mid-1900s, written by a man who I would say whose heart was set on pilgrimage. His name, Dr. Harry Rimmer, an archaeologist. He was dying with terminal cancer, and he wrote this letter to his good friend, Dr. Charles Fuller, of the old-fashioned Revival Hour radio broadcast. I had never heard of that. I looked it up. That radio broadcast lasted from 1937 to 1968. And Dr. Rimmer was a close friend of Dr. Fuller. And here's the letter. My dear Charlie, and this is a man with terminal cancer. My dear Charlie, next Sunday I, I understand that you are to talk about heaven. I am interested in that land because I've had clear title to a piece of property there for over 50 years. I did not have to buy it for it was given to me without money and without price. But the donor purchased it for me at tremendous cost. I'm holding, I am not holding it for speculation for the deed is not transferable. It is not a vacant lot for I've been sending materials there for over 50 years out of which the greatest architect and builder in the universe has been building a home for me, which will suit me perfectly and never need to be repaired. Termites cannot undermine its foundation for it rests upon the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it, floods cannot wash it away. No locks or bolts will ever be placed upon its doors for no devious person can enter that land where my dwelling stands. It's ready for me to enter in and rest in eternally without fear of being evicted. But there is a valley of deep shadow between the place where I live now and that to which I shall journey in a short time. I cannot reach my home in that city of gold without passing through this dark valley of shadows. But I am not afraid because the best friend I ever had went through the same valley long ago and drove away its gloom. 
He has stuck with me through thick and thin since we first became acquainted 52 years ago. And I hold his promise in printed form never to forsake me or leave me alone. He will be with me as I walk through the valley of the shadows and I shall not use, lose my way. I hope to hear your sermon on Sunday next from my home here, but I have no assurance that I shall. My ticket to heaven has no date stamped upon it, no return coupon, no permit for baggage. I am all ready to go, and I may not be here when you are talking next Sunday, but if not, I shall meet you there someday. And the editor's note after the letter says, and it did happen that by the time Dr. Fuller spoke that Sunday, Dr. Rimmer was in that land. But those who love God, never meet for the last time. May we all be as assuredly headed for that city whose builder and maker is God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Blessed is the man who trusts in you. Blessed are those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Let us pray. Father, our hearts and our souls are stirred as we so clearly see Jesus in this psalm and his promises. And Father, I pray for each one here, if there's anyone that does not know your anointed one, that second person of the Trinity who took on a robe of flesh and came to this earth and lived a sinless life and died a torturous death and rose and is now seated at your right hand in glory and who is a soon coming king and judge of all mankind, the one who offers everlasting life as a free gift because of his life. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you might work salvation and grace into the hearts that are here. And Father, for every believer, may we be more attuned and more excited and exhilarated to come into your presence and be willing to pay that price for the pilgrimage that you have called us to. Father, we do praise you. We do trust you. Lord, help us to be transformed more and more into the image of your Son. Christ Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.